Hey, Liz. Hey, Kat. Hey, Kat, what would be almost as fun as recording a podcast together? Well, I think it's almost even more fun, but I guess that's debatable. (laughs) Doing one-on-one coaching with you, Liz. Co-coaching together has been one of my favorite aspects of doing this podcast with you. So guess what? We're going to do it. We are going to offer career coaching sessions to our listeners, but not have it be recorded. So we're going to offer one-on-one sessions at a really good deal. And we started the podcast with the goal of helping people who are stuck with something career-related. And if we can help through the podcast, that's awesome. But if one-on-one coaching is more someone's speed. So we have decided to offer a intro special. Yes, we have an introductory special of $100 an hour, which if you're a big math whiz like me is (laughs) less than either of us would charge individually. So you are saving over 50% and you get two for less than the price of one, which is awesome. And in this kind of session, you don't have to worry about your boss hearing it or your friend hearing it or anything else. It's absolutely confidential, Mm -hmm. just like any Mm -hmm. career coaching session, but you get the Liz and Cat experience in a one-on-one session for $100. So if this sounds interesting to you, shoot us an email at realjobtalk at gmail.com and we'll be happy to schedule a call and do some one-on-one work with you. Can't wait. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Real Job Talk, the podcast about jobs, careers, and what's not said at the water cooler. I'm Kat Troyer. And I'm Liz Bronson. And today we are talking about a really important topic of global communication with our guests, Raul Sanchez and Dan Bullock. Raul and Dan both teach at NYU School of Professional Studies and are business communication and training experts. Raul and Dan wrote a book called How to Communicate Effectively with Anyone, Anywhere, which teaches about connecting and communicating globally. Welcome, Raul and Dan. Please tell us about yourselves and how you got to where you are today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I'll go first, I guess. I am (laughs) Raul Sanchez, and it's a pleasure to be here. I am a full-time professor at NYU, and I also, part of my job is the corporate program coordinator, so I handle trainings between multinational corporations and NYU. Uh, and I also coordinate an on-site business communication program. And so at NY, at, at the School of Professional Studies, the population is about 80% international. So the need oh, for wow. these skills and, of course, for the global workforce has become even more prevalent uh, in recent years. And so it's been very exciting to be a part of that change. And then I've had the pleasure of co-teaching several workshops and seminars and courses with my colleague here, Dan Bullock. And uh, this led to the creation of the NYU International Student Support Center, which is between all the disciplines at the school, between all fields, it's open to all students. So there's been a lot of things happening and very excited to be here with him. And I'm going to turn it over to him to introduce himself. Hey, everybody. Nice to be here. And thank you for having us, Liz and Kat. I really appreciate it. So just a little bit about myself. So my name is Dan Bullock. So I'm a language and communication specialist at the United Nations Secretariat here uh, within the New York duty station, which functions as headquarters. Many people know there's other duty stations across the world. So we do do a lot of work with Geneva, which is our sister headquarters for Europe. And then, of course, the other duty stations scattered here and there. I teach a number of diplomats, delegates, and global UN staff higher order communication skills. Uh, So this consists of negotiation skills. This consists of better presentation skills. It incorporates intercultural skills as well. It can also range into um, email correspondence, which is something that we also talk about in the book, Effective Emailing. Um, At the same time, Mm -hmm. 
I also am a professor at New York University in the School of Professional Studies, like uh, Professor Sanchez mentioned. And I teach within the Masters of Public Relations and Corporate Communications because a little known fact, I used to be a publicist. I still am on the side, right? <laughs> Ah. But communications is a passion of mine. Building relationships is a passion of mine. So, so that's what I try to instill in my students within the courses I teach in the master's program. So now I teach within the executive education program, which is part of uh, the English Language Institute. And there we focus on a lot of communication skills as it incorporates language, uh, specifically English, right? Um, at the same time, I've taught at other places here in New York City. Believe it or not, the school of the New York Times, so there is a school at the New York Times, uh, primarily for journalists, um, as well as for high schoolers. So okay. part of my time is dedicated to that. And then Rule and I also contribute to the Wall Street Journal and a few other places as well. That's kind of the well-rounded, I guess, version, so to speak. So yeah, we don't sleep much. We don't. Sleep. I abbreviated my bio. We don't sleep much. And we're writing for the Wall Street Journal, Business.com, and then of course the book, and somehow fitting all of this in with teaching and coordinating and training. And, but it's exciting. So you were bored, and you felt a need to write a book. So how did the book come about? Um, of course, no. The book came about. Um, there's several. I think several several catalysts for the book. One of them would be there was. Um, one day we were thinking about areas that fall outside of traditional curriculum that students were asking about. Mm-hmm. Networking skills, presentation skills, even class participation for international students, because some cultures, you don't participate in class until the end of class. You know, there's there's a lot of differences mm-hmm. there. And so coming to the U.S. where participation is part of democratic processes and so on, and having a count towards a grade was very new. And then, of course, networking is different. Mm-hmm. So these areas and effective emailing that fall outside of traditional curricula And so we proposed to the dean workshops in those areas that would be open to students. And then that led to the creation of the NYU International Student Support Center, which was open to all, first all master's students in the School of Professional Studies, and then it was open to all students. And what happened there is that what was very interesting is that American students started to attend these workshops that were targeting um, primarily for international students. And we thought, this is interesting, having a dialogue between, and there's no, you know, it's one cohesive group, it's the global workforce. And then that pushed us to arrive at singular strategies, not strategies that work in one culture or another, but strategies that American and international both can come together and think about ways to approach global communication. And that that was sort of the catalyst for the book was that, you know, that those groups coming together in these workshops and then leading to the center and realizing that there's a place for these skills within all disciplines and all fields. And it, it kind of evolved from there. And I don't know, Dan, there's some, there's a catalyst for the actual thesis of the book that was One Night Over Arby's. So maybe Dan can tell you about that, <laughs> which is, I think is actually more, in, well, not more interesting story, but it's a whole different type of story. But this was, this was part of, um, for the, you know, sort of the main idea and the framework of the book, that was part of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the Arby's story. Okay, so the Arby's story was, pre, was yes. pre-COVID. It was one of the many nights, you know, working late. And then we all gathered at, Rules apartment. And by the way, Rules a twin, right? So his twin brother was there. And the artist for the book, yes. Yes. And then we were there and, and we were discussing. And I remember just kind of bringing up the stars, you know, like I've always been captivated by the stars and wondering what's up there. But in, in, in terms of these patterns, right? Because we constantly look for constellations and being in North America here, right? So some constellations look a little bit different 
in other parts of the world, they're kind of tethered together in different formations just because of different religions, different um, cultural beliefs, things like that. But it comes under this essence of story, right? And that's kind of what kicked off Mm -hmm. this conversation a little bit further. And then we got to thinking, and then Rule, maybe you can speak to this a little bit. Um, We're not sure if a lot of people are familiar with the overview effect. Mm -mm. What is it? The overview effect, and Rule can maybe speak to this a little bit more, but it's that photograph, I believe it was 1969, whenever astronauts were in space and they turned around and then they looked back at the earth and it has this this captivating feeling, right? And that's kind of what Mm -hmm. what we wanted to instill in the book. And Rule, maybe did, did you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So when Dan brought up constellations, then we thought of patterns of communication and how different cultures see different patterns in the sky. And then why not bring that idea to patterns of communication on the earth? And so that was part of it. And then the other part was, as Dan as, as Dan mentioned, the overview effect, which is the idea that the most powerful cognitive shift can happen when you think of the planet as a whole, sort of an astronaut's viewpoint. And mm-hmm. something that in the photograph Dan mentioned, uh, earth rise, you know, this was as close to viral as an image could go at that time on the planet. And this was shared from the Apollo mission. And they, you know, it's credited with starting the environmental movement because it gave the planet, everyone that saw that photo, an awareness of a singular system that we're all a part of. And so that's what we were going for with the book is thinking about, we start with that in introduction and saying this book comprises patterns of communication. If cultures are patterns of thinking, patterns of doing then there are these patterns that exist and the global communicator navigates between those patterns. Uh, And so that became the crux of the book. And then it was actually the last chapter when Dan mentioned the the stars. And then we thought of it for a strategic writing, building patterns in your writing. And then it became the framework for the entire book. And that was exciting. And so then also it gave us sort of framework for thinking about singular strategies and not just, you know, one culture or another, but thinking about an approach that would hold all of them and also leave room for individual diversity as well. I really enjoyed reading the book. I hadn't heard of the effect until I read the first chapter and you guys opened the book up with the story that you just shared. Yeah. Sure. Thank you. So our audience is pretty career focused, right? Mm -hmm. So we thought it would be really great to have you guys on to talk about, you know, to talk about communication in the Mm -hmm. workplace. And what we thought would kick off with is maybe you could share with us some of the biggest kind of errors or needs for the book that you see for people who are communicating globally. What jumps out at you? So what immediately comes to mind, just in terms of the nature of the work, whether it's at the United Nations, but like today, we're all working in global teams, right? Mm -hmm. And just being able to to communicate on a level where everyone can understand each other. And this is um, a topic that we kind of dissect a little bit further in the book, but global English, right? So global English is the international business standard in terms of how people communicate cross-culturally, right? Just because there needs to be a common language. And and what global English consists of is, is basically not using any idioms, not using any slang terms, things like that, because again, like those don't translate. And I think it's very easy to fall into the habit of that. And, and I'll be honest, that's the way that I used to talk in public relations, right? Just because that was the nature of things. And it's almost like a code where you kind of fit in mm-hmm. uh, the workplace, so to speak. But then as, as I started to study more linguistics and just the way that communications from a psychological perspective actually unfolds, right? And then we started to talk about this cognitive shift and cognitive flexibility is another aspect, which by the way, is a, is a growing skill according to I think it's the World Economic Forum, right, Rule? 
Yeah. Right. But that's kind of what I think of in terms of, I guess, obstacle for some people, because we're so ingrained in how we communicate or talk to other people that we tend to sometimes forget, well, well, maybe it's not translating exactly how maybe we intend it to be. But mm-hmm. that's one, I think. And then rule. Sure. And I can, I can jump in. I think that's a great starting point. So, um, and sometimes I think the easiest way to think of global English is think of what's not global English, what's called non-global English. Mm-hmm. So one of those would be idioms, right? So idioms are those groups of words that have a cultural meaning separate from the parts. So something like off the top of my head, right? As a phrase mm-hmm. makes sense to native speakers, but non-native speakers off the top top of my head, you know, you're breaking it down and the literal meaning is completely different. Cut and dry, you know, something else, but also cultural references. Americans love references to sports, Mm -hmm. you know, level the playing field, bring our A game, grand Grand slam. slam. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is coming out of left field, you know, and so these things, you know, making sure that the cultural references are clear. And then as Dan mentioned, initialisms and acronyms, initialisms being the the separate letter pronounced of the abbreviation, like FBI. Acronyms are more like NATO, you know, where you say the the abbreviation as a word. And at the UN, there's a lot of those, you know, government organizations use a lot of those and those can be quite challenging um, for international audiences. Mm -hmm. And then businessisms, of course, like corporate speak, like get your ducks in a row. This is a lot of moving parts. Mm -hmm. Let's put some feelers out there. You know, we all, we've heard of those all the time, but those can be quite challenging. And then of course the phrasal verb, which is, so it's a verb that is a two or three word phrase. Mm -hmm. So we're going to drop the contract. And so what we do in trainings is say, Mm -hmm. instead replace those with single verbs, like write or construct or draft instead of just draw up. And then sarcasm is the last. So humor and sarcasm, you know, because it's the opposite of what we mean. If we say beautiful day, isn't it? Sure. And it's raining. You know, or yeah. we say this is just what we mm-hmm. need. And it's actually the opposite of what we need. Mm-hmm. That may not get across right. that playful intent. So instead, we when we train, we think of, you know, think about empathy. Think about language that's inclusive, pronouns like we. Think about common mm-hmm. goals. And so, yeah, global English is a big, it's different than plain language because it includes cultural mm-hmm. nuances too. Um, but that's one great area to start. I think that Dan mentioned, yeah, on the workforce. Yeah. I liked how, how you guys talked about global English because it made me think of things in a different way. And as someone who's lived in different parts of the country, when I went to school in the Midwest and people were all calling soda pop and I'm like, it's Coke. What are you talking about? It's either, you know, Sprite or Coke. Like, what is this pop, pop? And the sound of it, pop. Yeah, no, I (laughs) Still puts shivers down my spine, but it's one of those things where... I can't, I'm a native English speaker and at different places I've lived, I've had to learn different language norms. And so I really appreciated how much you all talked about global English. And then I thought of like, okay, so let's say I'm doing a global presentation to an audience from Japan to Kenya to Silicon Valley. Like, how do I prep and how do I test my material to make sure that I'm not naively you know, messing with people and having it be really difficult. And just a little known fact, because you said you're from the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest. No, I'm from Boston. (laughs) I, I went to college in the Midwest. I am a Bostonian. Never know from her accent. Hey, I grew up in Ohio and I'm originally from West Virginia. Okay. That state that I guess maybe not a lot of people know. They know the song. Everybody knows the song. Everybody knows the song. Everybody knows the song. (laughs) But that's a good question. Did you maybe want to start and then I'll add in? Sure. So there's a few things. I think one one that we start with is the idea of a catalyst. So, you know, that term in chemistry for that speeds up the chemical reaction and that, 
when you're a presenter for global audiences, you're thinking of yourself as a catalyst. You know, you're the spark, right? Mm -hmm. You're not the source Mm -hmm. of change. And that seems spiritual, but uh, the reason for that is Mm -hmm. twofold. One is because then the audience becomes the center of the presentation, not you. And culturally, we think Mm -hmm. when we're presenting, you know, I think this has to do with more individualistic cultures. Like you have to be yourself. You're presenting for your voice and your idea. And But when you're thinking about the global audience, it's actually, you're, you know, you're almost the, and Dan always says this, that you're the fairy godmother or you're Yoda or you are, you know, the guy, (laughs) but you are, you're the guy that's handing the water to the marathon runner, but you are the catalyst. Mm -hmm. And then that shift in thinking makes the audience the center. And that's what leads to adaptability. That's what leads to that cognitive flexibility that Dan mentioned, because then your whole perspective Mm -hmm. changes the presentation. You're thinking about how can I adjust my communication style and maybe adjust it a few times to make sure my message reaches my audience? How can I reframe and yeah. rephrase? So, um, so we always start with that. And then I think the other thing I would mention, and then I'll see, I'll turn it over to Dan, um, are these three larger patterns that exist. So in the book, we call them linear expressive, multi-expressive, and amicable expressive. Mm-hmm. But basically, they connect to Aristotle's appeals. So one is appeal to logic, appeal to emotion, appeal to credibility. And if you include all of those things in a presentation, you have so appeal to logic, statistics, data, appeal to emotion, your stories, you have media, and then appeal to ethos or credibility. You have information about your background. You have information about, you know, you, you cultivate a space of social harmony. You're guaranteed to reach mm-hmm. a spectrum of audiences in one space. And I am oversimplifying it because there's a lot to it. But essentially, with that framework, you're able to target a a spectrum of audiences in one space. And then, Dan, did you have anything to add? Yeah, so that's a very good point. And just, I mean, just to kind of get into the intercultural element. So we have to think about Mm -hmm. cultures and, and in terms of how these cultures function on a global level. So, for example... About seventy mm-hmm. percent of the world functions in what's called high context cultures, right? And this research comes from a person, so Edward T. Hall, and then and, and then there were some other researchers, um, Gert Hofstede, who's a social psychologist as well, and then a few other people. But the idea is about seventy percent of the world operates in a high context culture. Now, a high high context culture means that that a lot of the information is perceived as being more implicit as opposed to explicit, mm-hmm. which would be low context cultures, right? Also, mm-hmm. like. Arul had mentioned in terms of these high context cultures, they're more collectivist, right? So decisions might be made um, as a group as opposed to an individual, right? So a lot of the information is very indirect, right? Because whenever you're operating on the global stage, respect is very important. How you uh, display forms of disagreement, right? You have to be mindful of that how you build trust is another element. But as compared to low context cultures, and just to kind of give you the parallel to that, is our low context cultures are more direct, right? So for example, just think of, for example, the US, parts of Canada, right? The UK, Mm -hmm. Australia, Scandinavia, Germany, a lot of these places are very direct in terms of the explicit nature of how they convey information. Whereas high context Mm -hmm. cultures consist of the majority of Latin America, the Middle East, Mm -hmm. Sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, a large portion of Asia, right? It really comes down to having that in back of mind as you're giving a presentation, right? And knowing on whether you're you're going to be implicit, but at the same time explicit and having this flexibility, right? So you want to use some metaphors, for example, in order to reach maybe those those audiences who are more implicit and then and then shift it up. So if you want to think about it as maybe a balancing act, that's another way to really identify with it. But ultimately, like Rule said, so you are giving 
you are giving the water to the runner of the marathon, for example. So you are there, you are leading the audience on a journey, right? So they, they are choosing to follow you and you're leading them through, through stories, right? And there's different storytelling patterns mm-hmm. that we talk about in the book as well. Right. But the idea yep. is that you're in service to the audience is the ultimate message. Okay, yeah, the audience is the hero of the story. Yeah, you're not, you're just the guy on the side, right? You're, you're giving them the, the tools. Well, when I was reading it, I felt like, okay, now every presentation needs to be a TED Talk. Like, we want every presentation where I'm gifting you this thing that now you're going to take away and ruminate and take on and make it part of your story, Um, which I thought was really interesting. But Dan, what I'm hearing you say is sort of, you need to say it because you said metaphor, which I'm like, wait, global English, no metaphors. And so it's, you have to say things the same thing in multiple ways to make sure you're connecting with all of the members of your audience. Is that exactly so like a lot of rephrasing, right? So, Mm -hmm. so keeping the meaning, but rephrasing it in different ways, um, multiple times throughout the presentation. Now there's something we talk about in the book, effective openings, right? And then we Mm -hmm. highlight these effective openings. Now you brought up Ted talks, which is interesting because whenever you go and you listen to a Ted talk, more than likely they're going to be using one of these, these four effective openings that we identify in the book. And then, and then there's one unofficial Mm -hmm. one, right? But the idea is you have to captivate somebody from the very beginning. You have to draw out this curiosity, right? Because it's just interesting from a psycholinguistics perspective in terms of how we interpret words, what we hear, and what's actually projected in our minds, things like that. And then mm-hmm. maybe rule like maybe talking about the neurocoupling aspect. This is something that we also start with in the in the first chapter of public speaking. We talk about this mm-hmm. phenomenon, neurocoupling. This came from Dr. Yuri Hassan at Princeton University. So his team of researchers were thinking about how can we examine the science of storytelling or how can we figure out what is the neurological basis of human communication um, and storytelling. And so what they found was really interesting is that when we deliver a powerful story, we share identical brainwaves with our audience. And this is something called mirror neurons. It's similar to how mirror neurons work. And what this means is something we already know, but it reaffirms that the most powerful transcultural vehicle between us is storytelling. And so this research affirms that. And so what they did was they hooked up audience members to MRI machines and storytellers, and they found that they share uh, nearly identical brainwave activity. And so our brains essentially get in sync in the act of storytelling. So this is something that we start with in the book. Yeah, and then as Dan mentioned, you know, we're going through the, the anatomy of a presentation and hooks as one of the most important parts. And because of dopamine, which is our, our brain's sort of uh, chemical reward for curiosity and a contrast, you know, so if you say, I want to I talk to you today about, what would it be? Let's see, environmental sustainability or something like that. Or if I say, if if world temperatures continue to rise, New York and Mumbai will be underwater by the year 2050. You know, and so that creates story. I didn't use the terms environmental sustainability or climate change or any of those, but the idea is that you're creating story around um, your main idea, your message. And so we build that throughout. And there was another thing I wanted to ask. Maybe we could do a little exercise. Dan, what do you think about schemata? Just to oh, yeah. another point. I think this is fun. Okay, so so there is another component to the presentation called schemata. Mm-hmm. And schemata basically is a blueprint that allows us to interpret information. So just to illustrate this, if I tell you that I bought a chair and I don't give you any details about the chair, can you describe for me what chair you pictured in your mind? The color, the shape of it, Material, anything. anything. I bought a chair. That's all I told you. What would you? Pictured like a wooden 
kitchen chair, like a boring, sorry, wooden kitchen chair. Like, not that you're boring. It just, that's what I pictured. Like, with like the slat across the back and then the hole underneath the opposite. Great. I pictured a, a old school Herman Miller Aeron chair. Oh, nice. <laughs> I like that. Very specific. Take I was going to say chair. very specific. I might take that one. Um, that's great. <laughs> so, so we asked this in our in our workshops. We get a range of answers: a white chair, a steel, you know, a chair for an office, or an armchair, or this. And so the idea is that's the wonder of communication that. Our schemata, our blueprint for chair, allow the communication to be successful. We all know what a chair is. We have a blueprint mm-hmm. for it in our mind. But mm-hmm. when you delve into a little bit deeper, we see that our cultural experiences, our preferences, you know, all these things play into the actual chair that we pictured. So in a presentation, mm-hmm. the idea is to activate schemata for an audience. You want to present information through more than one sense as much as you can. Mm-hmm. So this is something that is one of the, I think, centerpieces too of a presentation approach we think of. So for example, I'm talking about entrepreneurship. Then maybe I'll put an image on the first slide as people are walking into the room that has Steve Jobs and maybe Amancio Ortega um, there with the word entrepreneurship in the age of globalization. Mm-hmm. And then when the audience members are walking in, they're able to pair the word with the image, connect language and experience mm-hmm. to the topic before I've even spoken. Mm-hmm. Those cognitive centers are firing. So this is one thing that we talk about too in the book is this idea of schemata, um, these cognitive frameworks and activating those through the senses. Yeah. And then just to kind of build just a little context around it, because most people think, well, it only applies whenever I'm standing up on stage and I'm giving a presentation, right? But this, this to some degree can apply in interviews. A lot of the time we have professionals, like from the workshops we do, well, yeah, well, I'm giving a business presentation. Well, guess what? You're also telling a story at the same time, right? So for example, I've delivered trainings uh, together with Rule where we were talking about presenting with data, right? And data, mm-hmm. you know that some of the information is going to be very heavy in terms of statistics and things like that. But again, whenever you're mm-hmm. change the focus into, okay, well, I'm, I'm up here with a purpose. And typically there are three purposes, right? So the first purpose is to you're informing somebody of something, right? The second purpose mm-hmm. might be to persuade somebody of something. Maybe it's to persuade a perspective you want to share, or maybe it's you want them to advocate for an issue or purchase something, right? The third one is really to entertain. So if you're watching your favorite Netflix episode and you're just kind of drawn into it, that's fine, right? But then the idea is to allow other people to see that it's not just when you're standing up on stage. Of course, that's what we're talking about as well. But the same concept can be applied in terms of business meetings and conference rooms, virtual mm-hmm. settings. And then I think in the book, we also say like, these are your, it's the proverbial campfire, right? Because people would yeah. sit around the campfire and tell stories. So guess what? We are hardwired for stories. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think anyone who wants to become better at public speaking, the first chapter in your book, it's like a crash course. In fact, mm-hmm. it, it almost reads like a textbook mm-hmm. because there's just so much information in it. But I, as I was reading that chapter, I was, I was thinking, okay, next time I have to give a talk, I'm going to come back to this book and I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to really try to map this out because why not? Right. Why recreate the wheel? You guys have, you know, put it all out there really nicely. So I think, oh, you know, I think oh, the better we communicate, the the stronger our careers are. I mean, that is just, that's just a truth. Mm-hmm. I want to kind of switch gears and step back a little bit. And I want, I had a question about global English. I, I wanted to know how you guys ad- advise people to test their content to make sure it's appropriate for global English without kind of targeting people or targeting a certain group of people. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are guides that are coming out. I think the UN has some guides that they recommend for delegates and diplomats and staff. The other thing I think with global English that we didn't touch on this point, but it's I think it's also very important with Eastern and Western cultures is this idea of writer responsible rhetoric um, or uh, reader responsible rhetoric. So, and what that means is that some cultures favor more information and others favor less. And that's that's mm-hmm. it seems like a small point, but it's actually quite profound. You know, in some cultures the writer has the responsibility or the speaker. So American cultures would be one of those where everything has to be in the text very explicitly. In other cultures, it's different. You know, the, mm-hmm. the writer doesn't, isn't responsible. The reader is responsible for bringing the information to the table. So that's one thing that we talk about in terms of alternating between these two style patterns is thinking about the rhetoric of that particular culture or as dancing the balancing act of having both. But with global mm-hmm. English, I think, we we usually hit on those key points, like the you know the the phrasal verbs, the businessisms, the um, idioms, and and just make sure that there's a distinction between. It's not that it's you're being simpler, you know. It's not that it's, it's mm-hmm. you're simplifying the language. You're just being more clear. So mm-hmm. that's something that we find a lot of professionals say. Okay, I have to be simpler, and then you know that leads to thinking that someone is not understanding you because you're not being simple enough. But that isn't the case. It's more about clarity, mm-hmm. and that's also a profound difference that I think is important. So, for mm-hmm. example, like just to kind of add in here, I know because I would tell my classes as well. If you're talking to the general public, right, a lot of the time, diction is important. So, diction is word choice, right? Sure. So, for example, if I say the word understand, there's going to be a high level word and there's going to be a lower level word. I could say comprehend. Right. Or I can say, do you get Mm -hmm. it? Right. So it's going to fluctuate. But the idea is that diction is very important at the same time. Like Rule said, it's not necessarily simplifying it, but it's making sure that you're connecting to the audience. And then four elements of communication that we like to really canonize to some degree Mm -hmm. is that you have to know your audience. Mm -hmm. Number one. Mm -hmm. Number two. You have to know what your purpose or objective is. So just like the purposes that we went over, so to inform, to sure. persuade, to, to entertain. The third one is you have to know your message. That kind of formulates the message, right? And then the fourth one, which which I like to think is the most important because from a negotiation perspective, value. So what's the value? Because if there's no value and people are sitting in the audience, for example, at a presentation or at a business meeting, they're going to tune out. And that's the worst possible thing that you want. You want to keep people engaged. So you have to know what the value is. And guess what? It's not just giving them the value at the beginning. It's carrying it throughout in different kind of waves, right? Mm -hmm. Totally. So I felt like, like Kat said about the presentations, I felt like a lot of your communication, whether it be around email or about speaking or even networking, it's like, it's very communication 101. Like these, these are the basis for all communicate. This is how you should start and, and get better at. And I was thinking a lot about what you were saying about taking the other person's lead or mirroring. And it made me think about like, general diversity around introverts and extroverts. And you tell people to mirror what the other person does, both verbal, written, physical. But how do you suggest they do that while also staying true to themselves? Because if I'm so busy mirroring Dan, I'm not being me. And then I'm like, oh gosh, I'm not Danning enough. And then I'm all goofy. And he's like, that lady is odd. So how how do you advise mirroring properly without losing yourself. Right. No, I think that's a great, I love that Dan, Danning was a verb. <laughs> I'm not yes, Danning I'm enough. A verb status. 
not danning enough. Oh, you're rolling enough. Okay, no, I think that's... <laughs> that didn't roll off the tongue <laughs> as well. Rolling enough. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, danning sounded like tanning, so I thought that was, that was fantastic. No, you're right. That was something that we put in the emailing chapter. We say, you know, it was a, it was like a short quiz, and Dan thought it was it was maybe too obvious, but I thought we had to put it in because we have this idea of ourselves that we think someone has to adapt to us, Right. We're in a relationship. Mm-hmm. The last thing we think in a fulfilling relationship is, is completely adapted to the other person, right? <laughs> Just to be honest, right? right. Okay. And so, so yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, that's something that we, is a, is a shift. And so we, we have to put that in there so that when, when the chapter, when we go through the chapter, that we have to let go of that idea of, you know, people have to adapt to us. But it is challenging because you're thinking about, mm-hmm. yeah, how do you hold on your own identity in the process? And I think it's more sure. about um, holding on to fulfillment. So you get fulfilled mm. when you are doing things in service to others, you know, and when you see it that way. And I, again, I know it does sound, we just today, um, which was amazing. We just got a review in the financial times and, uh, and it was a positive review. They picked the book. And one of the things the reviewer pointed out, she said, this says she recommended the book and she said, it is an unusual book and that there is, there's some spiritual elements to it, but she liked that. You know, she said that that was a positive. And I said, I'm glad that she saw that undercurrent throughout, because when you think mm-hmm. about these skills, they also involve shifts in your, in your mindset mm-hmm. and might possibly shifts in what you think is fulfilling to you. And so the idea of service, then that's when you get fulfilled and you let go of that sense of self mm-hmm. and find that you know, it's really about the message. What message are you trying to get across? You always are going to have yourself, but in that presentation space, in that when you're sending that email, what what is the, the impact you're going to have is from the message. And you just want to communicate it in the way mm-hmm. that is the most resonant that you can. And even if, mm-hmm. if it doesn't pertain to, you know, you in terms of the way you prefer it, it's more about that message mm-hmm. getting out there and rippling uh, wherever you want it to go. So that's how, that's how I approach it. When I teach, you know, when I teach, uh, I used to you know, my students would say, what do you think when they're having a debate or they're having a discussion? I say, I'm the canvas, you know, I'm just here. And it was hard at yeah. first, but I realized that's the fulfillment. I'm, I'm a catalyst. I'm getting them to articulate themselves yeah. and then self-actualize. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so that's, yeah, that's the way that I would, I would answer that is that you're thinking about more fulfillment than holding on to identity. You're holding on to the fulfillment of being that spark for other people. Mm. I've learned a little bit in communication um, from taking some some classes in NLP, right? And mirroring is one of those tools that helps you to get in rapport mm-hmm. with someone. And and when you're really in rapport with someone, it, it's happening naturally. Mm-hmm. Like you know, Liz Liz right now has her mm-hmm. has her hand on her face a little bit, right? And and I found I myself just doing yeah. that. Rawls doing it too right now, right? So it's more natural than than mm-hmm. we realize because when we're naturally in rapport. That stuff right. is just happening. But I think to raise the awareness about that is what you're doing, you know, as, as part of what you're doing in Thank the book. You. Which is no, and, I think, and I think you've in your work talked about this too, I think, because we we did a little research and <laughs> gently moving forward. Right? But you've, ah. you've talked about, I think, this um, idea of a spark too, you know, this idea of mm-hmm. inciting change, but mm-hmm. it's part of a larger um, process. It's not just you, you know, you're thinking mm-hmm. about changes between you and someone else. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that is the idea. I think. And then the ripples, the ripples that yeah. can happen the from ripples. that, right? Yeah, one, one little thing can, mm-hmm. can really impact. And 
that's when it gets fun for me. Right, right, exactly. And that's why the overview effect, and we, I think we put in the presentation chapter, you're seeing sort of these spark lines go across the globe and these ideas mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. intersect through time. And then you're just part of that process. Your idea is intersecting with those and then it leads to something else and another invention and from mm-hmm. the sundial all the way to the smartphone to, you know, wherever it would be going. But yeah, letting go of self, I think is something that, is a shift, but that's once that is there and you think about fulfillment and service, then it, it works. All the strategies come into place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about your chapter on networking mm-hmm. and how networking globally can be different. That really landed mm-hmm. for me, right? Maybe you could share a little bit about your tips for norms around greeting people from different countries, but networking goes beyond a greeting. So I'm gonna pass it over to you guys to speak a little bit about mm-hmm. that. Right, sure. And we're totally sharing that page in our social media, the one oh. with every different yeah, country and like yeah. the, oh, that was the best. I'm like, everyone my brother would love it. Make sure to tag my brother because his, okay. his artist will. following will, they'll, they'll love that. They will, they cool. will onto that. Yeah. Awesome. Dan, do you want to, do you want to start the networking? So yeah, in terms of networking, we talk about uh, this idea. I mean, as we were just discussing the whole context where our role was saying about emailing, what was coming to mind was the cultural ambivert, right? So it's, and then Liz had mentioned, okay, well, there's extroverts and then there's introverts and then we could have ambiverts, right? But then, but there's really this other one as well, right? Like these cultural ambiverts and, um, and networking is so crucial today. It's all about building relationships, but it's not just any type of relationship. It's authentic relationships because we always tell the professionals in our workshop, it's not just going up to someone and say, Hey, can I have a job? Right. You have to build up to this, right? You have to build up to this. But then the idea is, is a lot of people want to know, especially under current conditions now with the pandemic, right? So I'm stuck at home. So how am I really supposed to network? Okay, I can attend webinars. I can do this. I can do that. But what else can I do? And and we talk about this, mm-hmm. this I guess, kind of philosophy from Buddhist tradition in terms of most of us are familiar with the three monkeys, right? So see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, right? But then the idea is that we try to shift it in terms of the idea of intention, right? So seeing intently, hearing intently, um, or speaking with intent, right? So then the idea is, I guess for a couple of tips is if you're trying to network cross-culturally, try to tap into a network where you can maybe get a mentor who's in another country. The idea is not to just stay with with the people you know or within your comfort zone right but the idea is actually to go beyond these these soft ties and solid ties and kind of reach for these global ties right because yes it's very comfortable to stay around the people that you know right but if you do that then you're just going to be kind of exchanging the same information for the most part mm-hmm. you want to go out there and really reach out to people who have maybe a global perspective or maybe in this case it could be an expat in another country for their insight in something for example somebody might want to be work might want to work uh, for a multinational company for example but then the idea is to really reach beyond i guess your comfort level would be one key tip that we could offer mm-hmm. The, the other part is we're thinking about we're going through the chapter and also in our in our workshops. There's a lot of students that when I introduced them to Dan, because Dan was a director of public relations in New York and he's worked with celebrities. You know, he's done a lot of work in the entertainment industry and other industries. So when he comes in, some of these students will come up to Dan and say, hi, I'm. I'm Bob. Can I have an internship? You know, like right away. <laughs> there's no, you know, there's no lead in, there's no, you know, bridge to, there's no segue. And so, but the idea of changing the networking purpose to being discovery driven versus the results driven. So thinking about 
you know, results driven, we're networking for assets for ourselves, for job opportunities, short term, you know, appointments or, you know, goals. And then discovery is when you're thinking about networking for ideas and that changes the entire mm-hmm. practice. And then uh, you're thinking about piloting ideas with others. You know, this is something that I think Airbnb did back in the day. You know, they went to networking events to see if they could test ideas on other people, see if they could inform them with other perspectives. And this also translates cross-culturally. And then then you start to explore shared goals and you find shared opportunities and you can find opportunities to innovate. And it changes the entire networking practice. So that's one difference that we wanted to point out. And you can tell I'm a nerd, so I'm very into Mm -hmm. these cognitive shifts, but I think that was crucial for networking. Um, And then you start to broaden out, you know, you start to think about, okay, I don't have these, just my solid ties, which are my family and those that are in my industry, but I can go out, soft ties, other industries and network with them because there's something of value there when they interface with my ideas. And I also help hopefully grow their ideas. And then you start to go out globally. So that shift in purpose, I think is really important when you're networking with a global audience Mm -hmm. is networking for discovery rather than results. And that actually also improves your thinking because you develop more critical thinking skills. You start to develop your ideas are more rich, global outlooks, new perspectives, and so on. So, And just to add to that, so some of the best networkers out there happen to be journalists, right? For example, people who work in the restaurant business because you're constantly mm-hmm. around different people, car sales people. I mean, there's many of them. You just have to kind of think about modeling yourself after that and really just getting out of your comfort zone is what I would say. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what networking is yeah. all about. But I like Raul, what you said about discovery because I think, all right, let's say I'm a job seeker and like, I need a job. So, but if I'm networking, I'm discovering what jobs are out there and I'm discovering who's hiring and I'm discovering what kinds of roles I could get with my experience. And so I'm still a job seeker, but I'm asking those questions to gather information and to share my, oh, you need someone who's done PR before. That's funny because I did PR in my last role. Interesting. And so it's just turning the perspective on its ear versus I need, I need, I want, I want to what do you need? Oh, interesting. I can right. do that. Yeah. That goes back to the service kind mm-hmm. of orientation, right? Because when yeah. we can be in service, we actually, it, it's a really different approach than, Hey, get me a job. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, you know, what, right. what can you do to help me? What, what can, you know, as opposed to, right. you know, it is a shift, it's a cognitive shift, but it's, it's certainly one mm-hmm. that is probably needed globally right now. Right. You know, and just to give a real world example. So my, my role as the corporate coordinator that wasn't a role that existed before I came to the, to the sure. department. That was created uh, when I proposed an idea. We had these uh-huh. what's called special programs. So groups visiting from abroad and they wanted um, training in English and also business communication. But then there was these other groups that were high school students and so on. And all of that was special programs. And I said, but we should really have a corporate area that handles these trainings and this. And so that was created for me. The idea is that mm-hmm. when you do network for discovery, sometimes there are jobs that you're applying for that exist, but you can also create, you know, a job can be created for an opportunity that you present. You know, someone will say, well, let's create a position for that. For and, sure. and maybe you can be the first, the pioneer for that. And so it leads to yeah. all sorts of projects, different approaches, mm-hmm. yeah, cultivating those seeds for opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. So let's talk about screwing up. I love screwing up. I do it all the time and I learn from it. But some of us do things that can come across as fine in one place and offensive in others. What do you suggest when someone says something wrong or emails something wrong or hears something wrong? Like, 
Let's talk about general global communication screw-ups and how to avoid and mostly how to (laughs) fix once you've done it. Right. Good. Dan, do you want to? Yeah. Like I'm trying to think, I mean, because I've always been taught and it seemed to work pretty well. I mean, as you know, I've, I come from the world of public relations and I'm working with clients. I mean, sometimes you say the wrong thing. I mean, as long as it's not live, right? (laughs) But the idea Mm -hmm. is, is I don't think you should ever pass off as if nothing happened. Right. I mean, I know a lot of the time if we're talking about presentations, just keep going. Right. But the idea is no, like you Mm -hmm. should stop and say, well, hold on a second. Like, uh, yeah, like actually I misstated something. So let me Mm -hmm. give you the correct information. And a lot of the times people don't do enough of that. Right. I sometimes do that just because maybe we're in a hurry or whatever the case is. But the idea is really slowing down and really making sure that you're giving the facts, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. What if you offend someone by accident? Like you say something, you think it's not offensive, and then it turns out it is offensive to someone in a different culture. I mean, one tip that I always give uh, when I did trainings for our resident advisors, so the RAs in the dorms, mm-hmm. you know, and so one yeah. part that I, I said, it's always... The, the responsibility is always on you as a communicator. So even if somebody didn't understand mm-hmm. something, you never say, oh, you didn't understand. Or, you know, it's always, oh, I wasn't clear. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't say that correctly. Yes. Or I should have given you more right. information. So, and that seemed to really uh, resonate with them. And they said, oh, okay. So every time, even mm-hmm. if they didn't believe it was their fault for, so, you know, do not to use the word fault, but it was always on sure. you as the communicator. So you say, okay, I'm sorry, let me rephrase. Let me say that again. I, mm-hmm. I must have not given you that information. I must not have been clear. And that always seems to resolve right. any communication challenges. And of course, body language, you know, you can see if someone is <laughs> reacting right. a certain way. I'm, I'm throwing my brow for those that are listening. But then, and you rephrase a few times and then you start to see the nonverbal um, affirmations, the nodding, and you get some idea. But mm-hmm. questions are always another thing, you know, and in the book, we have some of those, I think, and in our trainings, mm-hmm. we have actually lists of types of questions you can ask. And there are stems to get certain information from audience, make sure mm-hmm. that the communication is happening and, and or you have to adjust. But I think always saying the responsibility on the communicator, that is one way to do it. Yeah, cool. So a lot of your advice boils down to being direct, fact-based, and having the goals of connecting, teaching, and serving each other. Mm-hmm. Besides keeping this book on their desk, how can people practice their global <laughs> communication skills? Like what lenses do you recommend people use when reading over and editing their communications? So I think one one area that I, at least personally I had to start with was the idea of explicit and implicit, because we tend to think mm-hmm. what is explicit is enough. And then what is implied, we assume that someone else can immediately grasp. But I think the idea of some cultures being implicit, some being explicit, you know, being direct, indirect, I think that awareness is very important as a lens for emailing, for verbal communication. Um, It translates into nonverbal communication where some cultures are taught to mask emotions and others are not. And, you know, with the research that we also highlight in the book, we all have the same universal expressions of emotion. It's just that some cultures Mm. have different display norms. So all of that, I think, is just thinking about, okay, what is on the surface, but then what, you know, reading between the lines and being open to that, um, whether it is reading an email or speaking to someone one-on-one, just knowing that there's some things that are always going to be explicit, some that aren't, and then trying to navigate both. So that for me is one um, axis that I always think about, you know, when I'm teaching, when we're doing trainings, that's something that I, I go to. And then Dan. Yeah. And I would also say just having just a general sense of mindfulness, right. And being empathetic to the other person, mm-hmm. right. Right. Because again, 
what you have control over is yourself. You can't necessarily control how somebody else is going to think or interpret something, right? So the idea is just having just a natural empathy and and growing with that. So continuing to foster that mm-hmm. and going into any situation, whether it's e- some form of email correspondence or if you're just in general conversation on the phone, virtual calls, whatever the case is, just being mindful and using that as a starting point before you start the conversation or send that email. And I have one more, I think, if I can. And the other thing is, so thinking again of that global mindset, because even something like negotiation, which we're taught to pride sort of the hard mm-hmm. negotiator, right? Someone who's making demands, who yeah. wins by threat. But the winning mindset is different. And it actually leads to a lot of different opportunities. Like, for example, if we have, there's a story in the book, but I'll just summarize it really quickly. Two cooks, they're fighting over a lemon in the restaurant kitchen, right? Mm-hmm. And and you would think and if it's, you know, if you're if you're targeting a win-lose strategy, then who gets the lemon, you know, who can convince the other one or mm-hmm. steal it or just by force or manipulation and threat, or should we cut it in half? But even cutting it in half, mm-hmm. each cook says we need more than half for the recipe that our customers mm-hmm. want. So then, but if it's a win-win mindset, then instead of demanding, one cook may ask the other cook, why do you need the lemon? And, you know, and they might say, well, I need it to make candied lemon peels. And the other one says, I need the fruit to make lemonade. And so in fact, they can both win if they just simply communicate a different way. So it's a simple story, but the idea is that when you have a win-win mindset and you're you're thinking about communication, again, we're not thinking about ourselves. This leads to better negotiation outcomes, but then that leads to diplomacy and maybe world peace. You know, maybe it ripples into other things. The idea is it's a bigger, it's a bigger Mm -hmm. system that we're a part of. And when you have that mindset in the Mm -hmm. communication, you are bound to get more opportunities, have more impact, you know, in terms of what you're doing. And then I think hopefully globally, there is um, a resonance as well. But I think yeah, that win-win mindset, that global mindset is crucial in everything. Well, and it's opening it up instead of saying, I want a lemon, it's actually, I want a lemon peel. And so that's a really different thing than saying, I want the lemon juice. And so when you're a little bit more clear and a little bit more descriptive, you can actually be more able to get what you right. want. Right. And if we're taking responsibility for our communication, then then that's where all the questions come in, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It. It's easy to make assumptions, but we don't want to do that, right? That's yeah. uh, mm-hmm. we want to ask questions even to confirm our assumptions. Right. Mm-hmm. No, we, because we might not be right exactly. with our assumptions. <laughs> yeah. And always asking open-ended questions, right? Because the mm-hmm. idea, just to go one step further, like Rule said, is is really you're trying to aim to be a creative negotiator. So you're really trying to meet the needs right. of the other person to create some sort of mutual gain, uh, for example, mm-hmm. uh, to really make sure that you understand the other person's needs and wants or the other, the other party's needs and wants, because again, going back to that service mm-hmm. element, but the idea is there. Yeah. Yeah. And when you talk about negotiations, you guys talk a lot about like find out, read the room, find out about their company culture, like learn about them. And the way you learn about others is asking questions and finding out. And so I think, you know, that's why this book is really important and really interesting because it's teaching us these basic conversation skills that we may take for granted or not really think about, but they can actually open this up to be better in all ways of communication, not just 
public speaking or written, but really across the board. So in our relationships, we, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's what it's all about is communication and building relationships. And whether you do that in your local town or across the globe, it's it's about getting to know each other and learning what makes each other tick. So we thank you both so much for coming. Please tell us where do we find you? Where do people find the book? Plug away. Tell us all your handles. So yeah, so we have our website is globallycommunicate.com. And an exciting feature that we'd like to tell you about is an augmented reality feature that is coming out next week. Then my twin brother, the illustrator, he designed the illustrations to come to life. So what it is, is you, you hold awesome. your smartphone over the pages and the illustrations will move and they will, and there'll be new tips that are revealed um, in that uh, enhancement. So that's really oh, exciting. Fun. Yeah. And then... And then Dan, do you want to you want to plug our social? Dan knows our social media handles because he's a PR expert on the team. <laughs> so our Twitter handle is globalcomnyc, and then we have our Instagram channel, which is connecting globally. We also have our our three LinkedIn profiles. So mine is just Daniel Bullock one. Like we can send them to you as well. And then Rule, I don't have yours memorized, but it's your name. I'm not. That's <laughs> okay. And then Rod, I think okay. it's just Rod Sanchez um, as well. So those are. Our primary handles. Um, I think that's everything, right? Okay, we'll make sure that all of those get on our show notes. We're giving away a. Um, my brother is giving away a painting for those who have ordered this week, um, and we might extend it to next week because it's called One Vision. You might have seen it in the beginning of the networking chapter, but there's a color. It's an it's an eye, and then in the iris, there's hand shaking. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that. So, um, but he's giving yep. away literally mailing signed copies of that to those who artists. The publisher is helping us with that. So that's also another benefit that people might be interested in. They're happy to send you a copy too. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a super address, cool we will, picture. We will be happy it. to send you one. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you both so yeah. much for joining us. And until next yeah, time. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having us. This is Real Job Talk, a podcast about jobs, careers, and what's not said at the water cooler. Our website with all Real Job Talk related information is realjobtalk.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us your questions, topics you'd like to talk about, and Real Job Talk stories. And you may find them featured on a future episode. Use the website or email us at realjobtalk at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Real Job Talk. And on Instagram and Facebook at Real Job Talk Show. My name is Kat Troyer. You can find me on Twitter at Daily Cat, And on LinkedIn, you can find me via Kathleen Nelson Troyer. And I'm Liz Bronson. On Twitter, I'm at Liz Beeks and Salt. And on LinkedIn, I'm Liz Bronson. Real Job Talk is a Tech Reckoning production. Our producer is John Mark Troyer. Our graphic artists are Lexi and Zachary Bronson. And we're here by the water cooler waiting to talk with you.